ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Web3 is one of the world's fastest growing industries, and the SoFi Web3 ETF is designed to make it easier than ever for investors to put their dollars into the technology they're most excited about. The SoFi Web3 ETF is the first Web3 fund on the market, and it provides investors with access to the companies powering the next tech revolution and driving a decentralized approach to the internet, such as the metaverse and artificial intelligence. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus. A prospectus may be obtained by visiting SoFi Web3 ETF at www.sofi.com slash invest slash ETF slash TWeb. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk and the possible loss of principal distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Holly Framstead, Director of ETFs at Capital Group, a $2.2 trillion asset manager who earlier this year they entered the ETF space with a launch of six actively managed, transparent ETFs. They have since followed that up with three additional launches at the end of uh, October. So nine ETFs in all, already about $4 billion in assets. Pretty impressive. Now, for those of you uh, unfamiliar with Holly, we're talking about a true industry veteran here. So she was at uh, BlackRock for nearly 16 years prior to heading up ETFs at Capital Group. Uh, she oversaw the iShares factor-based ETFs along with their sustainable and megatrend ETFs. So this is someone who knows the ETF space inside and out. And so I'm really looking forward to this. We're going to discuss the rise of actively managed ETFs, which continues to be a big story. Uh, Capital Group is obviously... Now a big part of that story, and we'll, of course, drill into their ETF lineup. Should be a fantastic conversation. Also joining me this week will be Lisa Langley, founder and CEO of Emerge Capital Management, who back in September, they launched what's called their Empower platform, EMPWR. This is designed to support women investment managers. Uh, they currently have five ETFs on this platform, all actively managed, all with a uh, sustainability overlay, an ESG overlay. So we'll find out why Lisa launched this platform. Uh, we'll discuss some of the challenges faced by women portfolio managers, which I think is a an important issue to cover. And then we'll highlight those ETFs as well. Now to start this week, I have on the line with me, 
Laura Krieger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. And I've got to tell you, we have a very interesting topic to get into. I think you're really going to enjoy this. So let's chat with Laura now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, great having you back on the podcast. So glad to be here this morning. Okay, so look, you and I were exchanging emails last week, and you mentioned something that caught my attention. I found this very intriguing, which was that you were seeing a huge uptick on the Vetify platform in interest around Dow Jones Industrial <laughs> ETFs. Dow Jones! I, I couldn't believe it. I just wasn't expecting that, and so I thought we had to talk about this. And I'll just tell you from my perspective, you know, one of the earliest ETFs to launch was the Spider Dow Jones Industrial Average ETF, ticker DIA. That launched in 1998, and it does have nearly $30 billion in assets, but I feel like nobody ever talks about it. It feels like a, a, a relic or something. And I also feel like anytime somebody mentions the Dow, like when I uh, tweet about it, I start getting all of these responses about its price weighting and, and all of that stuff. It just touches a nerve for some reason. So again, I thought we had to talk about this. And to start, I, I guess let's start with what you're seeing on the uh, the Vetify platform recently, and then we can get into some of the uh, other stuff around this. It's so funny you mentioned that because really DIA, which is the, the oldest uh, and biggest um, Dow ETF that you're mentioning, it's kind of like the Rodney Dangerfield of the ETF land, right? It don't get no respect. Um, you know, it's been around for, for a very long time. As you said, uh, it started in, it was incepted in 1998. Uh, and there really haven't been too many other Dow ETFs that have launched since, only a few. Uh, so it's very unusual that a you know, single first mover is able to corner the market for decades without any um, you know, real competition. But it's, it's so um, fascinating to see uh, but in the last week of October-ish, we saw just this massive surge in engagement and traffic and excitement around all things related to the Dow. Stories that were covering you know, Dow Jones Industrial Average, you know, we're seeing really high readership, engagement around the three or four ETFs tracking the Dow have uh, begun to surge. Uh, here's just a stat for you. Engagement since... From the last week of October to today, engagement around DIA has surged almost 200% on our platform. And engagement around NDJI, that's the, the newer Dow-linked ETF from Nationwide, that surged 900%. Just whopping numbers. And so it's, it's a little bizarre, right? Because like you said, nobody really talks about the Dow. It's not really something that gets a lot of respect. Um, or, or attention. But if you look at just the straight numbers, DIA has about $30 billion in assets. It's one of the top 50 largest ETFs out there. It has decent daily trading volume, over 1.5 million shares traded each day. And it's, it's covering an index that is so widely tracked that it appears on every crawl on CNBC and Fox Business and all those other ones. But people are starting to take notice of DIA and other uh, Dow ETFs because of the underlying index has just had an 
incredible run over both the short and the long term, right? We're going to get into, I think, some of the short term performance year to date. But my colleague, Jill Mislinski, she just ran the numbers on this since 2000, uh, the year 2000, the Dow is up 61% on an inflation adjusted basis. S&P is only up 46 and the NASDAQ's only up 26%. So um, the Dow's just crushing it. <laughs> well, well, I actually went and ran the nominal performance. Listen to this. Since its inception, DIA has outperformed the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, 610% to 540% cumulatively. Yeah. I, I ran that this morning. So uh, something's clearly working here. I, I guess before we talk more about why you think we're seeing this uptick, let's talk about the Dow methodology, because I do feel like this is often uh, ridiculed, probably deservedly so, right? It, it seems very arbitrary. But again, you look at the performance, clearly working. Uh, explain the, the, the magic here. What's going on underneath the hood? It really is a bit of magic. It's a bit of alchemy in the uh, ETF land. So the Dow Jones uh, Industrial Average Index, it, it holds 30 large cap companies. They're selected by a committee. And that committee is uh, staffed by people from S&P Dow Jones Indexes and also the Wall Street Journal. So fun history fact for your um, next cocktail party, Charles Dow, uh, who the, you know is the namesake of the index, uh, used to run the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I think he founded the Wall Street Journal, in fact. So there's, a, you know, it's a committee-based selection process. There's a lot of discretion on the base of the indexers. It's basically active management, right? And the index doesn't include some big sectors in the broader economy, so it doesn't have transportation stocks or utility stocks. It excludes a lot of big tech mega caps and fang stocks. So the Dow is less a reflection of the U.S. economy, more like vibes of the U.S. economy. So it's a narrow portfolio. It also, as you said, price-weighted. What this means is that the Dow's index value is calculated by adding together all the stock prices of those 30 holdings in the index and then dividing by a, a quote-unquote Dow divisor. And this is just a factor that's designed to account for corporate actions and you know stock splits, that sort of thing. Once upon a time, that Dow divisor was 30. So it was just a you know, 30 stocks, 30, uh, you know, and so on, an arithmetic mean. Now it's less than one, which means that the value is actually much higher. The Dow index value is much higher than the average price of the components. And so for every one change in the price of one of the Dow holdings, the index is going to move something close to like 6.6 .6 points. So it's it's a little interesting. It's it's probably one of my favorite uh, indexes um, out there because of its, its strange, um, you unfamiliar, I guess, uh, a quirky methodology. Well, I mentioned uh, the, the, the word arbitrary. I always remember a couple of years ago when Apple announced that four for one stock split just because of that and because of Dow's price weighting methodology, Apple's weighting in the Dow dropped from like 11 to 3%. Think about that, just based on a stock split, which does not change the value of, of the company. A couple other things that I'll, I'll point out, you mentioned the committee aspect here and how it's basically active management. I completely agree with that. I've said that. It's funny, with the S&P 500, same deal, right? Where you have like, yeah. I, I picture... Uh, 
people sitting in like the back room of a dark bar, over, you know, big mahogany, wood tables and, and cigars, deciding what's going to go into these indexes. <laughs> uh, I know there's more to it than that. But here's one other fun fact just on the price weighting. If you actually look at DIAs, the, the ETF's holdings, it holds the exact same number of shares for each of its 30 holdings, which is obviously yeah. due to, uh, you know, hashtag math. But go check it out. I, I think it's interesting to see when you pull up the fun page and every holding has the exact same number of shares. Uh, but, you know, again, I, I do think it seems like an arbitrary way to capture the market. But like we said, it's done pretty darn well. And if you look just this year, the Dow is down. I, I ran this this morning. The Dow is down 8% this year. S&P 500 is down 19%. And going back to the interest on the, the Vetify platform, I do think clearly performance is a driver. I think anytime we see ETFs pop on the Vetify platform, typically there's some sort of underlying performance story. But I do think it goes beyond that when you look at the types of companies the Dow owns, that maybe these are the types of companies investors want to allocate to moving forward. So I guess let's get to that side of the equation in, in terms of what this actually holds and, and maybe uh, tie that to the current market environment. Do you want to get into why the Dow is outperforming? Oh, sure. So, and and you bring up a very good point that it's it's often performance that sparks interest on the Vetify platform, but it's sustained uh, by other factors as well. So in this case, the Dow is skewed very heavily towards healthcare, financials, and industrials. You know, those are you know, defensive sectors that we've seen a lot of strength in lately, um, a lot of interest in lately as defense against inflation or, you know, in the case of financials, as exposure to rising rates and so on. They've also seen really strong earnings season too, right? So the NASDAQ, the S&P 500, those are skewed toward big tech mega giants who have had not the best earnings season, let's be real. Um, but the, you know, the, the stocks inside the Dow, you know, have done a lot better. So, for example, United Healthcare, that's the largest holding currently in uh, DIA, accounts for more than 11% of the portfolio, had a blowout earnings report, reported something like $15 billion in pure profit last quarter, beat its estimates. Goldman is the second largest, uh, largest holding, accounts for 7%, again, beat earnings estimates almost by 10%. You go down the line of the, the holdings in DIA, in, in the Dow Index, Caterpillar, Honeywell, so on and so forth, you'll see that these are really, they've had, almost all of them have had really strong earnings seasons and really strong fundamentals here. So essentially, a lot of these stocks are value plays. And, and value investing, value stocks has been very appealing for investors this year. They offer solid fundamentals, less risk or lower risk in an environment where, you know, Three quarters of advisors in our recent polls have been telling us that they expect recession to be coming next year. That lowered risk uh, and, and strong fundamental base, that's something that is very much appealing to them right now. Well, I'm very interested to see if all of this translates into additional flows into something like DIA. Again, we, we've mentioned a couple of times that this has nearly $30 billion, but Given it's been around since 1998, to your point, doesn't have a whole lot of competition. And given the outperformance and this, uh, this 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 move by investors to a more value-oriented approach, uh, again, it'll be interesting to see if this gets some more looks. Uh, I, I guess on that note, 
just value investing overall. For investors who want similar exposure to an ETF like DIA, but but maybe they just don't want to own the Dow for whatever reason. Again, maybe they can't get their head around the price weighting methodology or whatever the case may be. And maybe they don't want uh, pure play value ETFs as well. Are there any other ETFs you might suggest that could offer a similar approach to something like DIA? Well, that's a good question because DIA, the Dow is so unique, right? And it's a strange methodology or a relic of methodology. Um, there really aren't too many ETFs like DIA out there. There are a few though. There's there's one or two. There's some leveraged inverse plays from ProShares. There is one Dow, one other Dow linked ETF out there. I mentioned it earlier. It's the one from Nationwide. And it doesn't offer a st- straight exposure uh, per se. It's one of those risk managed income ETFs, kind of in the vein of NUSI, right? So you're getting, um, rather than just like plain Jane vanilla exposure to the Dow, you get you know this portfolio of stocks and then an options overlay on top to eke out some additional income and offer some protection against you know, catastrophic slides in the index and so on. Of course, not everybody wants to invest in options, but or you know have exposure to the options market. But if you don't mind that, and if you're looking for maybe higher yield on top of uh, the Dow exposure, um, you know NDJI does offer that. It has a, a distribution le- yield right now over seven percent um, compared to you know DIA, which is under two. So um, it's it's a little difficult to uh, get pure exposure outside of that. But, you know, industrials, ETFs, there's a, a slew of um, sector funds from Invesco. There is an equal weighted industrials. There's an equal weighted, um, you know, financials. And so maybe one of the other options you have is to build, uh, cobble together some of these equal weighted uh, sector ETFs out there and uh, build your own, you know, Dow-like exposure from them in the same sort of way. It's interesting. I just pulled up NDJI, that nationwide ETF, only about $30 million in assets. So again, that's another one. It'll, it'll be interesting to watch just to see if it gets more yeah. traction and you know, it, has, it takes that risk manage approach. Um, Laura, just a couple minutes left before I let you go. I'm going to switch topics on you just a little bit. So one stock that is not currently in the Dow, and, and maybe it will never be, is Tesla. And I bring that up because I saw a, a neat new feature that you're doing at Vetify where you have this bull versus bear debate. And the one that I saw was on Tesla. I thought listeners might find this interesting because the piece that I looked at, it had a lot of discussion around uh, ETFs that own Tesla. So there was that ETF angle. This particular piece also folded in some ESG debate, which you know I always like. So I, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> Is this going to be a... A regular feature moving forward. I, I I really like this. I'm so excited to hear you say that. So yes, it's a regular weekly feature uh, on Tuesday mornings. Two of our staff writers are basically taking opposite sides of a hot investment topic, uh, you know, with an eye towards ETFs that you can use to play either side. So last week it was Tesla. Uh, this morning, the one that went up this morning is uh, on Meta. So L Caruso and Kerry Gordon are kind of looking at the long-term case, investment case for Meta, which is very well-timed considering the massive layoffs in, at Meta and other tech ETF, uh, excuse me, tech firms right now. But what I really love about this column 
is that the writers can just roll up their sleeves and get really down and dirty into the topic. So, you know, they're looking at accounting fundamentals. They're they're digging through earnings calls, transcripts. They're looking at long-term growth plans and, and controversies, ethics controversies. They get really nervy, nerdy. And they're going kind of beyond the surface level stuff that you see bandied about. Um, honestly, Elle made me a bull on meta with her arguments. And I didn't think that was possible. So I love these. We've got a great calendar of them coming up. Next week, we're getting into Indian equities. Um, we've got electrification metals and value investing on the docket. So it's going to be fun. Keep checking back. Uh, and if, of course, if you think of a good topic that you think our writers should uh, take, you know, hot takes, spill their hot takes on, um, just reach out to me by Twitter or email or whatever. Well, you know, I have some ideas, so I'll be sure to uh, to yeah. do that. And to your point, that's what really stuck out to me, um, that these are deeper dives. So Vetify has a ton of fantastic content. I, I don't know how you guys put out as much content as you do uh, on a daily basis, but, uh, you know, some of that content's pretty broad. This was much more of a deep dive. In, in the, again, the one that I read on, on Tesla. So listeners should definitely check this out. I, I really thought it was a unique way to cover some timely market uh, topics. And again, fold in some ETF discussion. But Laura, fantastic stuff as always. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com slash ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. I'm now joined by Holly Framstead, director of ETFs at Capital Group, who back in February, they launched their first ETFs. So this was an initial suite of six ETFs. And then just a couple of weeks ago in October, they launched three additional ETFs. And already in only about nine months, they have nearly $4 billion dollars in those nine ETFs. Uh, pretty impressive, especially given the market environment. Now, of course, Capital Group is well known for offering the American Funds lineup of active mutual funds, one of the largest fund lineups out there. And overall, Capital Group manages nearly $2.2 trillion in assets around the world. And Holly is now joining me from California. Holly, it's an absolute pleasure. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much, Nate. It's great to be here. Okay, so we'll obviously get into the ETF lineup, but I want to start with the actively managed ETF market overall, which I know you believe is still in its uh, very early days and with a very bright future ahead. And the numbers would agree with you. So you look at the data here. I mean, there's been more active than passive ETF launches each of the past three years. Flows into active ETFs are accelerating. So something like 15% of net flows are into active ETFs, even though they only represent about 5% of the total ETF market. I'd love to have you start by talking more about the overall opportunity in active ETFs and why the timing was right for Capital Group to get involved this year. 
Yeah, you know, I think it's a super important um, question, Nate, and the, certainly the product proliferation or the expansion of active offerings that we've seen over the last couple of years isn't um, coincidental. I, I think the laws changed, the regulations changed in 2019, which enabled active managers to bring their investment solutions to the ETF vehicle and deliver um, deliver those solutions with all of the same tax benefits that passive ETFs had long enjoyed. And so the market really shifted and created an opportunity set. And that's why I think you're seeing, seeing more and more products come to market. It's certainly a key reason why um, we are now able to offer our solutions in the ETF vehicle. But I think importantly, when you think about the evolution of ETFs um, over the last, you know, call it decade, what you've seen is a, a product set that has grown increasingly more niche, in large part, I believe, because the providers were forced to use indexes. And so what we found was that financial advisors were adopting ETFs at the core or the heart of their portfolio, but because they were mostly passively managed, they were forced to use increasingly narrow slices of the investment universe to deliver on that excess return potential or even just the differentiated outcome for their clients. And so I I think that really financial advisors were yearning to not be the active manager, which is what they had become, and really look to outsource that again, which is certainly the appetite we've seen. That's what we've been hearing from our clients. And it's a, a big reason why we're now in market with core solutions. You mentioned that evolution of ETFs over the past decade. So uh, I I mentioned this at the top of the podcast. You were at BlackRock for nearly 16 years and served in several capacities there. So I know your most recent role before joining Capital Group, you were head of U.S. ETF product segments uh, for BlackRock. So you oversaw their factor-based, sustainable, and megatrends ETFs. But you saw firsthand ETFs go from that very small niche industry to a mainstream investment vehicle. And you obviously personally helped play a role in that. And so what I'm curious about, you know, the foundation for ETFs was really built on the passive side. And then we saw the rise of factor-based or smart beta ETFs. Again, you were directly involved with that. And now we're seeing this rise of active strategies. Can, can you talk more just about that journey for ETFs, how we've gone from very plain vanilla index-based products to now the active market really taking off? Yeah, so I, I say, you know, it, it starts actually even further back, really with the launch of sector ETFs. So you started with kind of core, um, core of the portfolio, S&P 500 type exposures. And then over the last decades, you've seen the rise of sector products, the rise of factor products, um, thematic products, megatrends um, being, a, being an example of that. And I think it was an incredibly natural evolution that at the time and as it evolved was responding to stated client needs. The regulatory environment, you know, really necessitated passive management in the ETF vehicle in order to deliver on all the elements of tax efficiency and liquidity. And as a result, ETF providers were responding to an increasingly evolving set of needs. But I think the challenge is um, what you then ended up seeing was an increased adoption in index funds from investors, advisors, who really actually needed to deliver on differentiated outcomes for their clients. And so instead of being able to utilize vehicles that could deliver on that outcome for them as active management had always served in the mutual funds wrapper, what they had to do was actually take on that role of active manager themselves and start building more complex portfolios, think things that have you know a market cap weighted core and then a satellite of 
a lot more niche exposures, whether those are, are thematic funds or, or factor funds or and, you know any number of um, narrower slices of the pie, so that they could deliver on that differentiated outcome. And the advisors that we've been talking to um, and that have been asking Capital Group for active in an ETF format for the last decade have been saying they don't want to play that role, actually. They want to be able to continue to outsource the active management um, to a, an asset manager like ourselves, but they haven't been able to in the vehicle that their clients need. And so um, I think the industry evolution up until now has been very natural, and I think the regulatory environment that shifted in 2019 has created an opportunity to even further bring the solutions that clients need so that they can focus on um, you know, their core competency and really where their time is best spent, which I would propose is probably building their business counseling their clients, building financial plans, um, all of the job that was the job before they had to take on active management also. Okay, so the capital group lineup of ETFs, the launches in February included three U.S. equity strategies, one international equity ETF, one global equity ETF, and then one fixed income uh, core plus strategy. And from my perspective, I think it's clear the intention was to start by addressing the core of an investor's portfolio. Uh, so do you want to talk about that and perhaps highlight the lineup overall, which, again, as I noted at the top, this is off to a fantastic start. I, very steady growth across the suite. Yeah, um, I mean, thank you. Thank you for saying that. We've certainly been incredibly pleased with the growth that we've seen. And um, you're right. We launched with a suite of funds that represent the largest asset allocation building blocks. And the fixed income funds that we launched just uh, a week and a half ago were intended to kind of further round out the remaining core building blocks. And our objective here, as I mentioned, is really to simplify the investment process for financial advisors by giving them active management that can sit at the core of their portfolio. I think what's been most heartening to me about this launch is in this market environment, which is shifting, challenged, to say the least, um, what we're seeing is steady growth across all of the funds. So if you just take two examples, um, CGGR is our U.S. growth equity ETF. And it is focused on finding companies that are steadily growing. Um, you know, it sits in that kind of traditional growth bucket. We invest flexibly, so there's an opportunity to invest outside of the U.S. up to 25% of the portfolio. But really, we are looking for companies that are continuing to grow. That, as a style box, has been out of favor um, for the majority of this year. But this is where I think active management can truly differentiate, and that is one of our, um, you know, our highest selling products year to date. The second highest selling product, or actually they are reversed, CGDB is now larger than CGGR, but CGDB is our dividend value ETF, which sits on the opposite end of the Morningstar style box, really focusing on producing a yield that is above the current U.S. stock market, and it's investing primarily in large established U.S. companies that have a history of paying dividends that are high quality in nature. Um, these two opposite ends of the investing spectrum that have had very different investment results in this market environment are growing at an almost equal clip. And what that tells me is that financial advisors have, have been telling us they want to be able to build diversified portfolios. And in fact, now that they have the tool set to do it, they are building diversified portfolios of core active exposure. So I think that the, um, you know, the growth that we've seen across the suite has um, certainly exceeded our expectations, and we've been very pleased with that. But I'm actually more impressed with the way that we're seeing clients use the products because it speaks to um, 
you know, really balanced and diversified portfolio construction. Holly, those three fixed income ETFs you recently launched, you alluded to this, but obviously fixed income has been a significant challenge for investors, though I would say at least there's now actually some income to be had, right? There, there's income and in fixed income. But what's the uh, opportunity you see specifically on the active fixed income ETF side where I, I've said for years, I think there's there's still a lot of white space on the fixed income side. But what do you see specifically around active fixed income? Well, I, I think you're right with regards to white space. So just to, I guess, ground us in some facts, fixed income mutual funds are still almost four times the size of the fixed income ETF market. So we've seen a far slower adoption in the fixed income asset class and the ETF vehicle. I think it makes sense when you consider the fact that 80% of fixed income mutual fund assets are actively managed versus just 13% of fixed income ETF assets. And so what that tells me is that investors still largely prefer active management in this asset class, and they've been underserved active options in the ETF vehicle. So we're incredibly excited, one, about our lineup because we think it serves an unmet need in the market, and two, because given the market correction that we've seen, particularly in fixed income this year, we think that the time is right, really, to think about um, rebalancing, reallocating, and, and diversifying yourself across the, the asset class. And so the four funds that we now have in market, CGCP being a core plus fixed income ETF, it's really designed to kind of provide that ballast at the core of a portfolio and think about restrengthening the core of your portfolio in an environment where many investors have been underallocated to the asset class. We're also seeing areas like the short duration space. CGSD is our new short duration ETF offering really compelling yields. And in a market environment where you can have high quality, relatively low risk, short duration exposure that is yielding somewhere in the 6% range, I mean, that, that's incredibly compelling and some of the best starting yields we've seen in decades. So we're seeing an increasing need for clients to get cash off the sidelines or de-risk their equity portfolios but remain invested through short-duration fixed income, um, like CGSD. And then beyond that, we launched a multi-sector ETF CGMS that really is designed to selectively get exposure to higher-yielding bonds. We think the dispersion we're seeing in markets today makes this a prime environment for active management, and um, CGMS is really intended to be that you know higher-risk but higher-yielding fixed-income fund. And then finally, uh, we launched a Muni ETF, CGMU as well, which, you know, of course, you can't be talking about the tax-efficient vehicle with and ignoring kind of the more tax-efficient end of the fixed income spectrum. So we think these products really round out four of the major reasons to consider fixed income now. And it, they're out at a time where investors are increasingly talking about the asset class and the need for active management in the space. So we're very excited about it. On all of these ETFs, all nine, in terms of the active management teams, I just want to be clear. My understanding is these are the same teams managing the American funds, mutual funds, but the ETFs are not clones of existing mutual funds. Do I have that correct? Yeah, you do have that right. And it, it might make sense for me to just take a moment on the capital system. So the capital system, the way that we manage money at Capital Group, is a multi-manager system, meaning every single fund, ETF, separately managed account has multiple portfolio managers. Most have a research portfolio where money is managed by our analysts. And the collective view and vision of all of these individuals and their own high conviction um, choices and investments are what make the totality of a portfolio. 
So our ETFs are pulling from that same pool of investors, but the actual investors themselves are, you know, their own unique combination. Um, the, you know, the weights and the contributions that each portfolio manager has to the ETFs will be distinct and different from an American funds that might be the kind of closest version. And the, um, the portfolio manager teams are not exactly the same between any of the American funds and the ETFs. And so what that means is we can have funds with very similar investment objectives that will invest in different securities um, simply because the conviction of the individuals that are making up that portfolio are going to be different. Um, so, yes, important to say the foundation of how we invest is common across all of our products, but our ETFs are all dis- designed um, distinct and separate from the American funds lineup today. Holly, one other aspect I want to highlight with these ETFs, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but uh, last week I spent quite a bit of time discussing the semi or uh, non-transparent ETF wrapper, which from my perspective, I'm just not very bullish on this structure uh, for, for several reasons, discussion for another time. But regardless, I believe Capital Group, if I recall correctly, you were at least entertaining the semi-transparent structure at one point, but you obviously ended up launching all transparent ETFs. Can you offer any insight into that decision-making? Yeah. um, First, I'd say we expect that this industry is going to continue to evolve. It's very new. Um, When we came to market, the semi-transparent structure, at the time that we made the decision to go transparent, still didn't allow for custom baskets. That has obviously shifted across, across most of the structures that are available today. But they also are still only allowing investment in domestic equities specifically. And so when we thought about how we manage money and the value we've delivered for clients, flexible portfolio management that allows us to invest some outside of the U.S. and some in the U.S. even for our funds that are predominantly U.S. exposed meant that we would be limited if we use the semi-transparent structure. In addition to that, we wanted to bring a comprehensive suite across the totality of the portfolio, and fixed income is also still not available as a semi-transparent ETF. So for us, the decision to go transparent was um, one uh, was it really about getting comfortable with the structure that was available that was going to allow us to deliver on all of the expectations of our clients. Um, I anticipate that we'll continue to see evolution here, and if we were to see greater flexibility in that structure in the future, it's certainly not something that um, you know that we would ignore or we would write off. But right now, we felt like it wasn't going to serve our purposes for this first launch. Just a couple minutes left here. From an overall uh, competitive landscape perspective, you know firsthand how challenging it is to compete in the ETF space. Uh, there's a reason it's called the ETF Terror Dome, right? <laughs> and so I, I'm curious on the active side in particular, how do you attempt to differentiate and really get your message in front of investors? Because if I'm playing devil's advocate here, which I, I like to do, I think some investors look at the various active managers out there, especially the uh, the larger shops. And we've had a number of those enter the ETF space this year. And I think it's somewhat difficult for investors to differentiate between products. There, there are just a lot of larger asset managers now offering core actively managed ETFs. So I guess the question is, why select Capital Group if you're an investor wanting active management? Well, so I think I think it's a couplefold. First, we've been around for more than 90 years. And so our track record and our reputation, our legacy really of delivering superior investment results for our clients, um, I think speaks for itself. And in addition to that, we have, um, I, I believe there are still a large number of mutual fund investors 
for whom the ETF vehicle can serve their needs, but they haven't had access to active management. And so if you think about the diversity that you have always seen on the mutual fund side of the equation across a number of managers, it really hasn't been a winner-take-all situation. You see a number of, of managers that have you know, 15% market share is, is really great on the active side of the equation, whereas you see far higher concentration on the index side. And so I think with active management, it's about ensuring that investors or pot- potential prospects understand your investment process, they understand the key benefits, they understand what you are trying to deliver, and they recognize, I think we all should recognize, that there likely will be less concentration as active managers enter the ETF space versus what we've seen in the index management side of the equation because indexes are all very similar and active management can be quite different. Um, So I think it's just about getting out there and telling the story and telling it to an investor base that has um, maybe not had to differentiate quite so much in the due diligence process when they were only evaluating index managers. Well, Holly, very well said. Really enjoyed the conversation this week. So great to finally have you back on the podcast. Congratulations on all the success with the Capital Group ETF lineup so far. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Nate. Great to be here. That was Holly Framstead, Director of ETFs at Capital Group. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by Lisa Langley, founder and CEO of Emerge Capital Management, who in September, they launched the Empower platform, which is designed to offer sustainable strategies run by all women portfolio management teams. Currently, there are five ETFs on this platform, and Lisa is now joining me from Buffalo. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And I want to jump right in on this Empower platform, uh, EMPWR for listeners. Again, this is designed to offer ETFs run by all women portfolio management teams. There is that focus on sustainability, uh, the ETFs leverage your proprietary ESG framework. Let's start with some background. Where did the uh, idea for this come from? Well, the idea came from a lot of industry experience, uh, knowing that women portfolio managers have a bit of a tougher time winning mandates, and uh, no matter how talented they are, what their performance is, uh, we started doing research on women portfolio managers probably in 2018, just to get more understanding of the exact obstacles, uh, and we invited uh, women investment managers to tell us you know, their stories, so a lot of it was very, very uh, compelling. Uh, we began uh, working with uh, a famous woman uh, portfolio manager, Kathy Wood at ARC. Uh, my firm was responsible for uh, selling and administering their separate accounts uh, across the U.S. We started in 2016, and uh, she's just a, you know, a legend and always uh, will be. She's an incredible 
uh, person and portfolio manager. Uh, but there are other women out there who, when they don't hit that level of, you know, phenom, uh, like Kathy did, uh, they struggle uh, to contend with all of the requirements of, of running a firm, of marketing a strategy, and uh, to be quite honest, uh, with bias within the industry. And that's, you know, something that I felt we could really do something about. And I've been in the industry for a very long period of time. Uh, I'm a tremendous advocate of of bringing great strategies forward and, you know, really wanted to try to do something about uh, an injustice. Uh, I just don't think they get their fair due, no matter how strong their performance is. Yeah, I was going to say to drive home your point. So I, I saw a stat on your website that less than 2% of U.S. domiciled active and passive funds are run by all female portfolio management teams. That's a staggering number. <laughs> yeah, in the opposite direction, right? <laughs> a number that knocks you out, but uh, is just representative of the incredible inequity. Uh, Morningstar has uh, really done a good job at, at trying to quantify this, and they've uh, and again, you know, one of the biggest issues we have in the industry is the lack of uh, disclosure that is compelled. Uh, so all of this is just from self-reported stats because there are firms that refuse to report. Uh, and those are some of the largest firms. Uh, so Morningstar, Morningstar estimates approximately 11% of PMs from self-reported data uh, are women. And uh, a group called the Knight Foundation tried to get at the actual, like, aggregate assets. Uh, and it's definitely, from their perspective, uh, in the neighborhood of 3 to 5%. Um, and then we just go down from there. Women of color, you know, it almost goes right off of the chart. So uh, it's a tremendous inequity. And the talent pool is broad. And these women have fantastic track records. And they should be treated just like everybody else. They should have the same fair chance. And, you know, I don't think that investors, I don't think advisors, I don't think institutions, and I don't think direct investors even know about this. Lisa, I know firsthand, just from doing this podcast, how male-dominated the asset management industry is. And while I do think the ETF space is a bit more diverse, there's clearly still a lot of work to do here as well. In your experience, I'm curious what are some of the specific issues you've seen? Because my hope is if we can shine a light on some of these, maybe that can help make everyone more aware and better, including myself. I, you know, I like to think I generally view the world the right way. I, I have two daughters. I want them to have a fair shot. But everyone has things they can improve on. So what are some of the biggest issues you see in terms of gender equality and asset management? Uh, one of the biggest issues is that there is not any regulatory compulsory disclosure of who's running the money under the hood at each firm. Uh, and we will be endeavoring to do work in that regard in the future. So we can't solve that, to, you know, today or tomorrow. Another thing that, you know, we can do is actually give our clients a choice, right? Uh, you know, uh, bring it to the attention of institutions. We're not asking for charity. We're just asking for an opportunity to earn our place at the table because these managers are exceptional. So I think the unaware, everyone being unaware of this inequity, uh, you know, just ask your clients, you know, are you interested in strategies that, you know, are managed by women portfolio managers? You know, at some point, 
in their career and their lives. 90% of women are going to be making the investment decisions on portfolios, either due to career, family, separation, divorce, death. One of these reasons is going to be uh, the trigger for them. And right now, um, a group uh, in Canada estimates that this is over $3 trillion in assets. So what are institutions doing about this to create awareness of the opportunity for them to also be offered uh, a group or a series of programs offered by women portfolio managers. So I would say those are two big things. Education uh, about the opportunity to diversify. You know, no one, we, you know, I've had male mentors my entire life. Every woman portfolio manager on this uh, program and, you know, ones we're doing due diligence on now, you know, for, for more ETFs next year, they've all had male portfolio managers as mentors. And men have paved the way in this industry, and God bless them. You know, I appreciate everything, you know, that they have done. And this is not about, uh, you know, are women better than men? Are men better than women? This is, you know, no. First of all, you couldn't even make that statistical analysis right now because so few strategies are managed by women, and they haven't been managed long enough to make it a relevant uh, sample size. But what's most important is that we're just trying to earn a place at the table, and, and unfortunately, women are the last to be hired, the first to be fired, uh, and they don't get their fair shake. And it's only because they don't have enough emphasis uh, in the offering solution. And I believe that firms that have jobs that become open for portfolio managers need to try to make a dedicated effort to retain and hire more women portfolio managers. Uh, so I think we have to have some almost affirmative action steps here uh, to educate about the inequity, uh, to get disclosure going in the industry that isn't optional, uh, and also to offer solutions and, and opportunities to diversify to clients. Let them choose. I think if everybody started actually talking about this, they'd find out nobody knows about it. You know, I'm sure there's a brokerage firm in, in the United States of America right now that offers its advisors all solutions managed by men. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's not that they did it with intention, right? Um, maybe there's a handful, less than 1% of their solutions are managed by women. It's like that. And I think that everybody just needs to be aware, to try and take some steps to help correct this. So, Lisa, let's talk a little bit about the opportunities that you're helping to create in uh, with the ETFs and the Empower platform. So I, I know you're clearly excited about all five ETFs that have launched in the U.S. thus far, but I'm going to put you in a difficult spot. I'd love to have you select just one of these and may, maybe first highlight the portfolio management team. And then second, just tell us about the ETF itself, strategy, holdings, whatever you'd like to focus on. Okay, all right, perfect. Well, you know, we have four distinct, very senior women portfolio managers. They're in that first crew. They're truly exceptional. I wanted them to be the, the leaders at the Empower program when we came out. We've been doing due diligence on them for uh, more than two years and, and working with them in some cases three years. Uh, so we understand what they're capable of. And while the ETFs are brand new, they have been running separate account strategies for years. Uh, and they're 
uh, long-term track records are available in Morningstar. Uh, so we have large cap dividend, That's uh, and all of our strategies are sustainable. It's very important who we are at Emerge, and we take a deep dive in, in gender diversity, and uh, we make sure that companies are uh, practical stewards. So, you know, responsible refiners that, you know, they can, you know, we can have fossil fuels, but we also uh, make sure that they're investing in renewables. So we take a, a practical approach, but very much so, very heavy on corporate governance and looking after their employees and uh, making sure they're looking after their clients responsibly. Uh, so we have large cap dividend uh, with Catherine Avery. We have a mid-cap, large-cap blend growth strategy uh, run by Catherine Faddis. Uh, we have a global equity core uh, run by uh, Jane Lee at Zevin. Uh, and Zevin's been, you know, running uh, and heavy in shareholder activism for over 25 years. And we have extremely experienced Josephine Jimenez from Global, uh, and she is running uh, emerging markets. So if you ask me to pick one, I'm not going to pick one. I'm just going to say it seems so far we're getting the greatest attention on large cap dividend. Uh, Catherine Avery uh, has coined a phrase that I love to quote, and that is dividends with a purpose. Uh, she has an extremely sharp pencil, a very senior investment manager. And so her ticker uh, is EMCA. All of our tickers begin with EM uh, for Emerge. And then it's CA for Catherine Avery or GC for uh, Catherine Faddis or ZA for Zevin on Global Core or CH for uh, Channing uh, on emerging markets. And then I have one called EMPW, which is a mix uh, of all four of them. Institutions asked us to do that, and we're starting to get some pickup in that too. But Catherine Avery's gathered the most assets so far. Uh, her share price is doing uh, doing so. I just say, hey, she's she's the leader right now. Ask me next month, and maybe someone else is has going to be uh, popped up into that. Uh, but she has the early uh, blocks out of the gate, uh, and she's really adept at finding stocks that have continuously growing dividends. Uh, and she's very sharp at when she buys them, uh, and she really is very experienced. So there you go. Lisa, before I let you go, we do have a number of investment managers who listen to this podcast. If they're interested in connecting with you and learning more about your platform, what's the best way for them to do so? Uh, the best way is to contact us. You can email us at support at emergecm.com, at, at, and we will get back to you immediately. We have a telephone number, 877-8-EMERGE. And we also have a great website, uh, emergecm.com. And that has all the detail on all of the uh, strategies that are available and how uh, to contact someone who can give you more detailed support. And we really, really appreciate your time, Nate. Yeah, no, I, I love what you're doing here with the Empower platform. I, I'm really excited to watch this grow uh, and evolve. So, again, congratulations on the launch of this. And thank you for joining me this week. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Take care. That was Lisa Langley founder and CEO of Emerge Capital Management. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. If you have not yet registered for the Exchange ETF Conference down in Miami in February, go to exchangeetf.com and listeners of this podcast can use a special discount code. So simply enter PRIME for $99 off your registration. I'll be there. Certainly hope to see uh, many of you down there as well. Next week, 
I have a very special edition of ETF Prime, which you're just going to have to wait to find out why, but I think you'll be very pleased. Until then, have a great week, everyone.